The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness that gathers us here today to sit beneath you, to hear from you as you teach us. You teach us in song and in prayer, and you teach us from your word now, spoken and heard. Thank you. Without you, without your guidance, without your instruction, we would be wandering lost. But with it, we see So will you teach this morning, will you perhaps illumine new things for some of us, but for a lot of us, will you remind us of old things, perhaps forgotten or overlooked? Will you remind us, encourage us, build us up, strengthen your church, and honor the name of Jesus, our King? What we have before us this morning, Lord, is good news, and I pray that you would help us to see it and rest in it. So build your church from your word this morning, we pray. Thank you. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. What comes to your mind when you hear the verb to rule? How about if we make it personal? To rule you. How does that strike you? Maybe a little off, a little bit blunt or hard. Something that sounds like force controlling you to take you in a direction that maybe you don't want to go or at least didn't buy into at the start. Something that's kind of hard about that. Now, probably for some of us, we can kind of work on that word a little bit and massage it and come up with something that sounds okay, that's good. And you probably recognize we're in a church, so he's probably going to take this in some direction that ties to God, so it probably can't be all bad. And Eventually, you can become sort of okay with the idea, but probably, if you're like me, a little bit, the first from that word sounds, eh. To be ruled? No thanks. Okay? What comes to your mind when you hear the verb to shepherd? To shepherd you? Different feeling, I'd imagine. That strikes most of us as care attentive concern for. Someone who is, who is looking at me and is thinking about what I need and is exercising some control to get me to something good that will be a blessing. So, would you rather be ruled or shepherded? Actually, for God, with respect to his people, they are the same. God's power aims to force us to control circumstances so as to drive us in a direction that maybe at first we don't buy into, but is actually because of his attentive eye on us concern to care for us. His rule is a shepherding rule for his people. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we look at the setting up of the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. Beginning this morning, I'll be taking a few weeks to address a couple of important concepts that are probably sort of familiar to most of us. 
but maybe things we've overlooked or forgotten, and for some of us, they'll be brand new, but they're going to be important that we kind of are refreshed in them, that we remember them and understand them in preparation for something longer we're going to head into eventually here. So this morning, we start with the first half of this very important chapter, 2 Samuel 7, where we're going to look at the covenant proper, what God said to make a, an arrangement, a, a divine relationship that he makes with David. Next, we'll look at what David's response to that is. But this morning we see king and rule and shepherding from care. God's purpose for us, people. And in fact, a, verb that, a verse that we won't read this morning, but we'll see it later, David's response to it said, said, this is something that's instructive for all of the world. So there's something here clearly for us as people something that's, that comes at us and is encouraging and should be reminding of us and, and pointing us out so many things, but also everybody else, too. It's not just a Christian passage. It's something that all the world needs to hear and respond to properly. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17, and we'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand what's here, what's actually being said, before drawing out two observations. Before I do that, though, some background context. By 2 Samuel chapter 7, the long story of David becoming king has finally ended. It was a long story. God puts David on the throne over all of Israel. That's 2 Samuel chapter 5. He establishes him there on that throne secure, builds a house for him, both a, a literal house, a palace, and a family. We get the tale of David's family being built there. Then in chapter 6, David decides to bring the ark of God into the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. After a significant mishap, the ark does come to Jerusalem, and David puts it there in a tent that he built. But that last bit gnaws on David, kind of rolls it over in his mind, and the ark, which represents the earthly throne of God Almighty, I put that in a tent. While I, a human king, I live in a beautiful palace. Something doesn't seem quite right about that, and so David sets out to fix that problem. Begin reading in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house so I to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep so that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you 
wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We'll pause there. Without David saying exactly what he's going to do as he sees this house disparity, Nathan basically understands and tells him to go ahead and do it. It's so obvious. You should obviously have a house for the, the Lord's tabernacle. But it turns out, God saw it differently. And that night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet. And what follows then in verses 4 to 17 is what God says. There are three breaks in this long speech. You can kind of, if you look for them closely, you can kind of see where the, the speaker turns. There are three breaks here that kind of separate this out for us and kind of take us into the heart of what God's getting at here. So the first section, verses 4 to 7, God picks right up where David's thinking is, right in line with David's thinking, but then he corrects him. Will you build me a house? Emphasis on you and me. You don't build for me. When have I ever asked my people for a house? I have never asked you nor anybody who came before you. I travel in a tent with my people who are intense, which is an amazing statement. It's easy to blow past this because we know that you know, the, the weight is coming later in the passage, but it's easy to blow past that and miss the wonderful humility in that. God identifies with his people. Why is God in a tent? Because he identifies with his people, and his people are intense. His people are wandering around. He wants to go where they are. It's like grandparents chasing the grandkids all across the country. I don't want to move to Wyoming, but my grandkids did, so I'm going. <laughs> Why is he in a tent? Because the people are. The people are. That's why. Something there about God's humility and his identification with his people. And there's also the question of beholdenness or dependence. It's front and center here. Who depends on whom? Front and center in the beginning, and it comes up even more in the second section, verses 8 down to 11. Say this to David, look back, look back with me at my grace over your life. My gracious power made you what you are. 
I took you from the pasture, from being a little shepherd boy. I held you, I protected you, I made you everything you are. I made you a prince, I cut off all your enemies. I've been with you through all of what First, second, first and Second Samuel was, decades of stuff. I mean, think back over David's life, Goliath and the, the adversity from Saul and the fleeing through the wilderness and the going into foreign countries into exile and then the civil war that he's just been through for years. I, I carried you, I made you, I protected you, I do for you. Whom, who makes whom here? We have to feel how odd this is. When you, when you come at various statements or various books about the gods as they relate to their people, certainly the gods do something for their people. That's why they are worshipped. But the gods are a demanding and exacting power. They demand from and they take from. And the people offer up service often very costly. You can think of even like the most gruesome, most costly things. They give up the lives of their children even. We sacrifice to you. We, we offer to you. And certainly, of course, there is sacrifice that should cost us something with this God, for sure. But he's making a point to clarify for us the exact opposite. For years and years and decades and decades and centuries and centuries, the giving goes one way and not the other. I'm the generous God, full of abundance. My pockets are deep. You come to me and I pour it out on you. When have I ever asked you for anything? I'm the one who gives. That's not meant to be, that's meant to be sweet. I'm the one who gives. Everything you are, I gave you. I have done for you, and I'm not done. Now, switching from looking back to looking forward, I will, he says, looking forward now, three things, one for David, one for the people, one more for David. End of verse 9, I will make for you a great name, and for the people, I will appoint a place for my people Israel to dwell, and I will plant them there in their own place, and then David again. That's the, verse 11 has a singular you in it towards the end. I will give you, David, lasting rest from all your enemies forever. That's the second section of speech, which is expanded then in the third. Moreover, the Lord says that he will build you a house speaks here with the second meaning of house, not a building, but a, a lineage, a royal dynasty in this case. The house that the Lord builds for David will go on past David's death to the son of David. And when that son sins, the Lord will discipline him, but not discard him like he did Saul. Rather, verse 16, the house of David will be established forever. The throne of David, the throne of David's son, established forever. Son of David will be the Son of God, verse 14, who will build the house of the Lord. And that Son will reign over a people established in peace. That's going to be the Lord's doing. And as we see in the following passage, which we'll come to eventually, David just marvels at it. The work of the Lord, marvelous in David's eyes. And he goes in before him to pray, verses 18 and following, which we'll come to later. But this morning, we look at two observations from the first part, which is 1 to 17. Here's the first. The Lord is determined to plant his people 
in a place of peace. The Lord is determined to plant his people in a place of peace. That's the first thing we have to realize about the Davidic covenant. It's actually for us. It's for the sake of the people of God. The promise made to David here isn't really about David. That's very interesting. It's very unusual to think about it, but, it, but we have to realize this. It's not for David's sake in the end. Even in the first section, as the Lord speaks to David, verses 5 to 7, even that early in the passage, God shows that he has his eye on his people. I lived in a tent. Why? Because the people did. He actually mentions the people of Israel three times in the very beginning. Before David even exists, there's the people, the people, the people. God's doing for and identifying with the people. And now when David comes up, I took you to make you prince over my people Israel. I've been with you and I'll make your name very great. That's verses 8 and 9. And then verse 11, I will give you rest. Those are the promises made to David. What's right in the middle of that? Sandwich in the middle is the promise to the people. Again, which is the point. If I said, I will give you a car and gas money and three car seats for my three kids. I want them to get to school safely, regularly, on time and comfortably. I just took this car to the mechanic. I got it all fixed up. I got the air conditioner recharged, put new tires on. It's going to be a great car for you. That may sound like me giving you a car. But why? I told you right in the middle. If I said that to you, my real concern, which you, which you would have heard, my real concern is I'm actually completely concerned about my kids getting to school safely on time, comfortably, regularly. And for that sake, I'm going to give you a nice car and fix it all up because I actually care about them. I'm making promises to you. I'm giving gifts to you. I'm being gracious and kind to you. And you will enjoy that for sure. But we both understand it's actually about them. Because my eye actually is on them, and you are a tool in my hand to bless them. That's what's going on here with the Davidic covenant. This is incredibly important to see, and perhaps surprising. I think often we come to this passage and we read it, and for, for a number of us here, I know this is extremely familiar territory. But a number of us, we come to this passage and we read it and we often identify ourselves with David. And we see in it the, the wonderful blessings, oh man, car and gas money and new air conditioner and tires and, 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 and all the things you've done for me. And maybe graciously, kindly, we, appropriately, we see God and we, and we kind of, tears in our eyes, mouth open like David kind of is here eventually. What have you done for me? The blessings you've poured out on me. What do I do? I, I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. I'm a, I'm a peon, and you have done so much for me to bring me and to bless me. Thank you. We identify with David, and that all is appropriate because God is like that with us, for sure. That's, that's good. However, David is not supposed to identify with us. David is supposed to identify with Jesus. And so then, 
Some of us come to this passage and we recognize that. And what we end up doing with the Davidic covenant is we go forward to Jesus and we say, oh, this is here in the Bible to help me understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And we kind of use it as almost like a foreshadowing or a proof text. That so we say, ah, there's the Davidic covenant. That's about Jesus. And it is. That's not wrong either. It is pointing out what he's going to be like, what he's going to do. It is helping us to understand who we're looking for and to then look back and see the evidence laid, the, the foreshadowing, the prophesying. For sure, absolutely. But if we look at it like that, we also still miss something. Again and again, the passage lands on the people. David himself realized it's about the people. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 12, it says there, chapter 5, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people Israel. That's in the back. That's in the past. Why did God bring him to the throne? David knew it's not actually about me. It's about God at work in this people, and he's using me. That was the past. Same thing going forward. The future grace of God, the promise that God is making about what he's going to do in the future to David and David's house, that also is for the sake of the people, for the sake of planting his people in a place of peace. I will be with you, strengthen you, David, give you a great name, rest from all your enemies, Verse 10, and I'm going to do that so as through you to appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them there to dwell there safely and securely, undisturbed, unafflicted, facing violent men no more. David, I'm going to give you power so you can take care of the violent men. David, I'm going to give you wisdom so that you can take care of all the, the conundrums of society. David, I'm going to give you a grace so that your land will be plentiful and will bless the people and provide them food. I'm going to do for you so that through you, actually, I can do for them. That's the context that gives the Davidic covenant meaning. So what do you do with that? See that and be encouraged. You who are in Christ, who are under the reign of the king this is about, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I think most of us know this. This is pointing to Jesus. Christian, this is about you. So that you can identify the Messiah, yes. You can see something of the grace of God in David and identify that, yes but so that you can see the people, the people, the people, the people, the people, the people, that's us. God has his eye on us and on you individually. Plural and singular, you. He made covenant with David for you, for y'all. He made covenant with David to secure, singular and plural, you. That is a God who is for you. Be encouraged by his faithfulness to do all of this over centuries. He worked in Israel for centuries until finally he sent Christ to make peace on the cross. That was a long time in coming, but he came and he did it. And since then, it's been a long time in coming. Is he coming? 
What we just spend so many weeks looking at in Second Peter. Is he coming? Yes. 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 Why? Because he made a promise. That look around has not been fulfilled yet. We are in a place of peace, spiritually speaking, but not yet physically speaking. God is faithful to carry out his promise, and he made a promise here, and he set up a king for the sake of that promise. He set up Jesus for the sake of a promise that's not yet done. He intends fully and finally and completely to plant us in a place where there are no more tears, no more violence, profound peace of any and every sort you can imagine. Shalom. That ain't here. So we could really tack this into 2 Peter. What's another reason that we know he's coming? Because he promised to make this happen and it hasn't happened yet. But God is determined to do it. He carried out over centuries the first stage of that. He brought the king this is all about. We're going to talk about that shortly. But he hasn't yet brought the place it's all about. He's half finished Keep that in mind, though. He's determined to carry out the whole thing. He carried out the first part of the thing. The rest of it's coming. Christian, you have to remember that. In the middle of being hard-pressed and sorrowful and disturbed and afflicted, when you face threats and challenges and fears of any and all sorting, when you wonder, is God in this? Where is he? That's our trouble in this world of trouble. We're going to face, we all know, we're going to face trouble here. That's what this world is like. And that's not actually our trouble. The trouble in the midst of all the troubles that we forget this. Or overlook it or fail to believe it. You should stop yourself. You should, you should work on the habit of taking yourself in hand. I sometimes do this. And say... Maybe even do this. Get out a piece of paper and a pencil and write down, is 2 Samuel 7 true? And write the word yes and write the word no and make yourself circle one of them. Because that might make the issue come right in front of you. So that's a way of taking yourself in hand and saying, do I believe this? Is this true or not? And probably for many of us, we're going we're gonna to have to circle Yes but we're going to be finding ourselves in some place of it. I believe but help my unbelief. Yeah, that's true, but man, it doesn't look like it. Well, that's why God tells us this again and again and again. It says, here's the ministry of reminder. Here's the ministry of the word to remind you. This is the truth. This is the kind of God that I am. I wandered in tents with you for a long, 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 long time. Because I wanted to be with you. I see you care about you. I promised to send a king. I took a long, 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 long time, and I did that. And I made peace with you. You're mine. Have I finished it all? No, not yet. Am I trustworthy? I think I've shown yes. Trust me. Don't let yourself doubt that or forget that or descend into despair because we're not yet quite home. He made peace with you in Christ, and he's going to make peace with you in heaven. That's coming. 
see that and be encouraged by that and fight to remember. Take yourself in hand and put yourself in front of it and say, Spirit of God, show me this. Remind me of what you have done already so far. Remind me of the cross and the empty tomb. and Give me hope for the second coming. For yourself, and I think also, this is something we, we sometimes skip here or miss, we also need to think about this for the y'all part. Because it's the people. The people. That's all of us. Which tells us something about how God sees his people. Not just his person, not just me and you. Us. You spend any time around the people of God and something will rub you the wrong way or something will be dull or boring or whatever. And one thing that can help with that is to remember oh, God has his eye on, God has a work he's doing for the people. God sent Jesus not just for me but for us. Remember the people and how God views the people. He won an inheritance kept in heaven for you and for us. Not just for you. For all of us, even that one that's kind of right now rubbing you the wrong way. He initiated it. He accomplished it in Christ's kingly reign. It will come to pass for you and for us. That's hope for us. That's encouragement for us. But as I said, there's also in this a message for all the world. Anyone who is not yet a Christian finds instruction in this also because as I said, this is not just a Christian text. We don't have, the world is divided into Christians and non-Christians. But the Bible is not just for the Christians and everybody else can kind of safely ignore it or can't find anything meaningful in it. The Bible is for us. It's about God and his work to send a king for a people and then it stands and looks at all the rest of the world and says, come and join this people while there is still time. While there is still time. Because there is not an eternal amount of time. He's coming. Until he comes, the door is open and the invitation is, is pronounced clearly and loudly. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I promise I'll give you rest now, and I promise I'll give you full and final, complete rest. I'll give you shalom. Come, if you're weary and heavy laden, come, 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 come. Well, there's still time. How do you come? Well, you don't, you don't physically come and just sit among us. I'm talking about come to Jesus. You, you come to the people, really, by coming to Jesus, the person. His message is simple. His message is an open invitation that starts with bad news. The reason that we are not tight right now, in fact, are alienated right now, is completely in your fault. This is the bad news where it starts. It's because of sin in you, the rejection in your heart of me. You don't want to be ruled. You bristle at the very thought. You say, I will go my own way. I know best for me. That's a problem because I'm the king, says the Lord. 
That's the bad news, where it starts. The good news is I offer right now to you, clearly here in English, I offer to you a chance to be reconciled to me. It involves Jesus and why I sent him to the cross. Repentance, you turn from yourself and trusting your own ways and turn to me and trusting my ways and you say, here, Lord, here's me. Here's the mess that I've made in my life. Here's the rebellion that I've made in my life. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll put it all on the cross. I'll pay for it all. I can't and won't pay for 95% of it. And you do the rest. Nope. It's an either or. You trust yourself or you trust me. Who do you trust? If you trust me, I'll take it all and pay for it all. I will welcome you into this people. I'll, I'll, I'll set a seat at the table for you. Here you are. If you're weary and heavy laden, you see the guilt of your sin, come, join this people, find peace. That's the offer that Jesus makes to the world. And the point of this passage is that it's found in one place and in one place only, in the king who's the son of David, Jesus. That's where God's working to bring peace, and that's what leads us to the second point, which we've already been bleeding into, of course. Here's the second observation. God will accomplish his plan through a son of David who is the son of God. God will accomplish his plan through a son of David who is the son of God. Middle verse 11, we get the third section of speech, which is basically an elaboration on the second section of speech where God made these promises to David where he said, I'll, I'll make your name great, I'll give you rest from your enemies. And here in the third section, it's kind of as if he said, let me be more specific. What I mean is, here's how I'm going to make your name great. Here's how I'm going to give rest. So middle of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. And 13, establish the throne of the kingdom forever. David's name, his house, forever. His royal line. It will outlast his death, verse 12. Death won't end it. Neither will sin. Sin, he makes this point, sin did end Saul's reign, but this is different than Saul. When he commits iniquity, verse 13, God's a, God's a total realist here. He knows that the sons of David, king after king after king after king, they will sin, and when he sins, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So death won't end David's house, nor will sin end it. God promises David, your house and your kingdom will be sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. A Davidic king on the throne of God, established by God, claimed by God. Notice verse 14, the language, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's language that was often used, not even just by Israel, but by, but by peoples when somebody became a king, they would talk about how their God claimed a unique relationship. Now that he's become king, I claim him as my son. And when he dies, and then the next guy becomes king, I claim him as my son. I have a unique identification with him, a unique empowering of him, a unique closeness to him, and then he dies. And then a new one. That kind of language is about identification and owning him, but it's different here. 
because he's never going to die, this king ultimately. He's going to stick with this king and keep his love on him. That's what I'm going to do, says the Lord. I will build you a house and identify myself even with it. And nothing in the world is going to break this. That's what the Lord promised to David. And we need to see that and hear again this great resolve in verse 16. Shall be made sure forever before me. Shall be established forever. Forever. Past sin, past death, the determination of the promise-keeping God is clear and encouraging and instructive to all mankind, it says. Because of where the promise ultimately leads. Now, there's not a lot of secret in this for most of us here. Back in David's time, this promise was carried out in son after son after son. First, obviously, in Solomon, the first son of David. And he's the one, actually, who did build the physical palace, as is alluded to here, who did build the physical temple for God's name. And then after him came other sons from David, and they reigned. And God took them and stood with them as father, and then they died. And he took another one and stood with him as father, and then he died. And that went on and on and on. And as it went on and on and on, you know the history here, it got worse and worse and worse. Not better and better and better, worse and worse and worse. It wasn't, it wasn't this, it was this. I mean, there's some kings that are a little bit better, but overall the slope is, it's getting worse and worse and worse. What's the deal here? God promised a son of David, and it seems to be going somewhere to forever and this great place of peace, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. So it comes to this point eventually where the discipline grows, the discipline grows, the discipline grows, and you kind of wonder, how is this going to work out? Is this going to work out? A son of David, it says right here, is the only way that mankind can find peace and dwell in a place at rest. And all of these sons of David's are something, but not pleasing to God. It seems like the thing is kind of failing, but in fact, of course, it's all part of the plan to show what? That there isn't any human son of David that'll ever be the king we need. That there isn't any human being ever, anywhere, that'll in any way whatsoever, by any stretch, be the kind of leader that we need that there isn't any person of any sort whatsoever that'll ever be who we need. This took a long time because God is, in a sense, working through a checklist. That kind of person? Nope. This kind of person? Nope. These collective people? Nope. This one with this attributes? Nope, 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 nope. Goodness. Who? God sent his son, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, a descendant of David. And when Jesus was baptized and began his ministry, what did we hear? A voice from heaven. This one is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. 
Later in his ministry, Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, which means that he was physically altered so that everything about him was like a blazing white light, physically altered, blazing white light, and a voice from heaven. What did we hear? Same thing. This one is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. This Jesus... He's the son of David, born in his house, and he's God the son come in flesh to reign. And he shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. We know this from what was said, the voice from heaven. But we also know this from what he did. What did this Jesus do First, when he walked the earth. This is actually, I heard somebody talking about this one time, this is actually the most intriguing and the most powerful angle of proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Not just the stuff said about him, certainly not something about his titles or his names, but what he did. He walked the earth and brought with him freedom from oppressors and evil men. How did he treat the Pharisees? How did he treat the Romans? He brought with him peace and shalom and care and healing? How did he treat those who are harassed and helpless? How did he treat the lowly? How did he treat the blind and the lame and the weak and the powerless? How did he treat prostitutes and homeless people? How did he treat people who, who had no money whatsoever? How did he treat women in general? How did he treat everybody that all society says is on the outside? Jesus brought them in and said, I care about you. Watch God at work. It's his eye on the people. Indiscriminate compassion. Jesus in action is a living testimony. This is the Son. But then Jesus not in action, but Jesus dying is, is the, the final proof. Because he didn't water down the holiness of God. He didn't water down the demands of God's law and say, everybody come, everybody, everybody, everybody come on in, you're all welcome. I don't care what happens. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. No, sin matters. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, but you have to come, and you have to come repentant, and you have to come trusting my cross to deal with your sin. You've got to come submitted and willing to be ruled by me, the God who is the good shepherd. By me, the God who is the good shepherd, but you gotta come submitted. You gotta come repentant. And you gotta come. Everything that Jesus did as he acted, everything Jesus did as he died, shows this is the Son. Everything the voice from heaven said, this is the Son. This is the Son of God, come in flesh to reign, the well pleasing one, the Son of David who is the one that God was always pointing to, who sets up a kingdom that is everlasting and under the shelter of his mighty wings, the people of God are shepherded to find peace. That's happened already. 
So Christian, don't just read that or hear that as information, but read it as the heart of God who was resolute in coming for you. He made a promise that he means to keep. And he's kept half of it already. Don't forget that. Don't overlook it. Don't doubt it. And realize, this lapses then into the message to the world, and, and realize that he hasn't done this like in some abstract, generic, misty, sort of hard-to-understand way. He's done that in Jesus. And whenever it is that you find yourself in the midst of trouble saying, ah, this is really confusing, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, The Old Testament says, ah, a great verse, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Christian, you should think, I don't know what to do, my eyes are on you, Jesus. Go find Jesus. He's the place where God is aiming to rule you into your good, to guide you and shepherd you. All of our focus is on Jesus. That's where we find our joy. That's where we find our life and our hope. And that's the message to the world, in fact. This is not just about God as anyone may imagine him, God who has stepped towards the world to care about people. This is God who has stepped towards the world in Jesus and offered a really, really, really good answer. But one answer. Jesus. To know him and trust him and find peace in him is the offer that he makes to the world. A peace that knows I can be at peace with God now and then I can be planted in a world of perfect peace then one day. Well, a world without spot or blemish or any kind of a problem whatsoever at all. A world full of an inheritance that is good. That all is coming. The king's kingdom is forever, and the king's kingdom is ruled by the one named Jesus. Trust him. God made a covenant with David, particularly because he wanted to bless you and you. That ultimately, that covenant with David, that's the son of David, Jesus, our focus is all on him. He's the ruler and the shepherd that we need. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to hear and rest in truths that are maybe new in some different ways, but are maybe also familiar in many ways to hear them and rest in them, and especially, Lord, would you help us to remember them. So much of our problem within all the problems we find is that we forget. Set aside. Help us to remember. Keep Jesus and his kindness and his, his care for us and his rule for us front and center in our minds of your people here, please. Build a church that remembers that trusts, that walks with him. And will you please come soon for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.